It is a dangerous thing to think that you are self-sufficient. To label yourself wise or understanding. This is the threat Jesus brings in that gospel reading from Matthew that we heard read. Where he says he thanks God. He thanks God that the things of his identity, who he is, that's what he's been talking about before this. His answer to John the Baptist's question, are you the Christ, which has been sent by his disciples after John's in prison. His answer ends with him saying, yes, I am. And thank you, Father, that nobody understands this. It's a strange prayer, this. Thank you that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to, it says, little children. The word there would mean babes or infants. And far from the way our culture likes to think of babes and infants as the picture of innocence, as if somehow he's, a, he's encouraging us to be like babies. Uh, that's not the way the ancient world would see babies. Life was important to them. Sons and daughters were important to them. But more or less, a baby is a hindrance most of the time. And if you're honest with yourself, indeed, they take a great deal of work. So it's not as though they're helpful. And they're certainly not understanding. They can't take care of themselves. They can't provide for themselves. They're utterly needy. And Jesus says, thank you, God, that everybody who thinks they know what's going on can't tell who I am. And that all those people who know they have nothing, they know exactly what I'm doing. That's what he just said, right? Verse 27, then, he says that all things are his. So if you hear him speaking, then, if you know that this is the guy, he's the one, he's risen. Of course, we confess that now, but back at this time, you didn't know that much. You just couldn't tell. You could hear him saying, I'm the good shepherd. And you went, yep. That guy's the good shepherd. Well, he says all things are his now. And no one's ever going to get to the father but through the son. And the only way that happens is the son chooses who's going to come to the father. Now, I've talked about election on and off the last couple of weeks. And we're not going to dive deep today. But the doctrine of election, as we Lutherans talk about it, is about the idea that God chooses you. You don't choose God. God chooses you. And here, Jesus says as much, anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him, but then don't miss what he does next. So he says, only people who I reveal the Father to will ever know the Father. So come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. There it is. There's the call. Now, there's a mystery at work in that call. It's an imperative. Do you know what an imperative is? You remember... English, <laughs> you probably hated when your teachers made you remember this stuff, but an imperative is when someone tells you you must do something. Or in Lutheran dogma parlance, it's law. Come to me. Huh? Commandment. But this doesn't sound like law, does it? Come to me, all you who are weary, heavy laden, I'll give you. It doesn't sound like it's something you have to do to get it. It sounds more like it's just open, right? And that's the point is that this is an imperative, but it is not an imperative you need to fulfill. It's being fulfilled in you hearing it. The moment you hear Jesus say, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, you're like, yep, that's me. Boom, it's done. The word of God has chosen you. This is the beauty of our religion. At the end of the day, you don't fill yourself up. He fills you up. You can remove yourself from the tank. And that kind of brings us, I guess, into the question of who is Judas. And why do we kind of, and then not remember him, and then remember this guy, Matthias. But first, 
Just a touch more of that Matthew text before we leave it behind. Matthew eleven twenty five 25 to 30. After he says, I'll give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me because two reasons, I'm gentle and lowly in heart. And then you will find rest for your souls, you know, for your inner life. And then he says that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Now, a yoke is a giant I don't know, you, that you would hang around an ox so the ox would pull stuff on it. It's not something anyone would imagine fun to put on, right? Come put on my yoke. It'll be great, I promise. It's a strange sales pitch again. But then you got to listen to how he defines the yoke. What is his sales pitch? What is he saying I'm going to put on you? He says I'm going to put on you learning, discipleship. You're going to hear things. You're going to remember them. And then what is that thing you're going to learn most? You're going to learn who your God is. Is that all? Yes. That is all. Because the main problem man has in the fall is we don't know who God is. And all he wants to do is restore that. He wants to bring back to you a full idea of who he is. And again, I can summarize the difference very quickly. What he is not is a God who thinks you need to do something. What he is, is a God who wants to give you everything. That's just a fact. It's just the way that it is. Now, don't go take that and say, Pastor Fist says I can go spend all my money and God's going to give me more money. That's not what I'm talking about. But I am talking about how, in terms of your spiritual life, your inner reality, your soul right now, and then what it means for that life in the life of the world to come as this flesh dies and then rises again, in that reality, God needs you to do nothing but know that he has done it in Jesus. Sufficient, completed, you're his now. Then why are you here? To tell other people, mostly, yeah, your, your kids is a good place to start, you know, your parents sometimes, yeah, your neighbors eventually if you can. But that's more or less why we're here, to be salt and light in an age of darkness, keeping the world as we can from completely falling apart, but never deceiving ourselves into thinking we're going to build a kingdom that will never fall. Rather knowing that all kingdoms are going to fall, so we're going to keep being the best salt and light we can, trusting that this age is, in fact, going to burn. And so I'm okay letting it go, because the age that's going to come will never burn, because Christ is risen, right? Never to die again. That burden is indeed light when compared to the anxiety and the despair and the chaos and the rush and the, the entire lunacy of this age in which all your countrymen out there, let me break it down super fast, what's going on out there in the world? They all think they can't die. They think if they do it right, they won't die. That's just wrong. It's just impossible. Trying to live with that mentality, it makes you live in fear. Because obviously you can die, so you got to be really careful. you got to run around and hide from everything. And you can see it in people. You can see it in all of us. Our, our tension levels are raised up. We're all afraid of dying, and we're all trying not to. And I'm going to suggest to you that trying to run toward your tomb as opposed to run away from your tomb is a far more marvelous way to live. I'm not going to suggest to you that it's easy. I'm not going to suggest to you that I've attained a perfect ability to do this in my head at all times. I can tell you that I have said to myself from time to time, you know, it'd be better, in fact, to die today. I'd just be home with, in heaven with Jesus. And it felt good when I said it. And then after that, I wasn't so bothered by what I saw around me here. And I was willing to deal with it. That's real. That's Christianity. 
You can't fake it. You can't try to make it happen. But it's a promise again that by imbibing this word, by putting these words into your head, not just this morning, but throughout your life, they become what you believe. And they're not so bad to believe, especially compared to what the TV is telling you you're supposed to believe today, which is nothing but terror. All right. So Acts, let's dig into this Acts text as our our main meat, if that's not enough lead up for it. Uh, So we pick up, as I said before, Jesus has ascended. He has told all the 11 who remain, along with these other followers, there's some women as well, Mary is there, a couple of Marys are there. Um, And then it says, it'll tell us 120 men. So 120 witnesses to the resurrection before Pentecost, right? Before Pentecost, they are waiting together generally in the Jerusalem area. They're going to the temple on a regular basis to pray. Um, And they have been told to be there because Jesus says in Jerusalem, eventually, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit upon you in a new and different way. This is what Pentecost is. The day that we remember every year is the event when the Spirit fell upon them. Uh, Tongues as of fire appeared upon their heads. They spoke in foreign languages about the resurrection and all this amazing stuff. 5,000 are baptized that day. None of that's happened yet. They're waiting and praying. In those days, then, it tells us that Peter stood up among the brothers. Notice the male there. Uh, brotherhood as an example of headship in the community. This is not to say that everyone ignored the women. The misogyny, the hatred of women is an easy term to throw around. What it meant is that people believed the men were going to look out for the women, and that was their job. And so the men got together and did that. It's very different than the American mindset, but we shouldn't look down on it so much, given how poorly ours is working out. That said, the company of persons in all was about 120, right? Now, at that point, that's not just men. That's going to be the whole group. He says then, though, to the boys, uh, brothers, you know, leaders, heads, listen to me. The scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now, Before I go into kind of pulling that apart, I guess we have to make a decision. I know where I'm at, but I'll give you the option to disagree with me on this one this morning. There's two ways of looking at the general thrust of this text. One is that Peter is a pious, godly man doing exactly what he's supposed to do. And in fact, Matthias eventually is an apostle and that this is what should have happened. That's my actual tack on this. The other, though, and, you know, I kind of get it. Peter's made a lot of bad decisions up to this point in the Gospels. He's been an example of what not to do and what not to say. And so maybe he's making a big mistake here, and he's completely misleading everybody. And that's why we have to get Paul later, who comes along and becomes the real 12th apostle. Now, again, there are people out there that teach that. And I wouldn't be surprised if you could find a Missouri Synod pastor that teaches that. So, you know, I'm not going to tell you you're going to go to hell for disagreeing. But I'm going to say, I'm not sure you're paying careful attention to the text. I don't think you, I don't think you quite understand what Peter's been doing this whole time. And I, and I don't think you understand also then how important it was to believe in the existence of a thing called an office. This is so hard to talk about today. Every time I want to talk about, say, the pastoral ministry and confirmation class, we've got to talk about the office. And the word in English just does us no good. We think of some building with a a copier, right? You know, or I drive to the office. But 
the meaning of the word, the idea is more like why when a policeman pulls you over, if you know what you're doing and you've been pulled over, you pull over, you roll down the window, you put your hands where you can see him, you look up, you smile, and you say, hello, officer, officer, right? You don't care who he is. You don't care what his name says. He has a power that exists outside of him. And what Peter discovers in reading two incredibly long psalms about the destruction of the evil people in the world is that the office which was given to Judas should be filled. And as he will discuss it later, that means there needs to be someone, one of 12, sent to the people of Judea. Don't miss this. Sent to the people of Judea initially in order to be a witness to them of the end of their old covenant and the beginning of the next. So that when Saul of Tarsus comes along and becomes Paul, he doesn't call himself an apostle to, uh, to Judea. He says, I am the apostle to the Gentiles, to the nations, one set apart, one untimely born, least of all, he says, all that stuff, right? Uh, so, so I take the position here that this was in fact what God wanted. And then the traditional history of this, which the Book of Martyrs talks about, uh, what happens to Matthias after this, so we, we won't really touch on him more um, beyond the tradition. Uh, what is believed is that he was there at Pentecost. He received fire upon his head and spoke in tongues like the other apostles did. And then around the time of the persecution that rose up later, he with the apostles left the area. Uh, none of them ever returned except tradition holds that he did. That before the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, he returned and was preaching in and around that city before it fell. Now, if you know anything about that time, well, Asimara's death indeed to die with that city. People were eating their own children to stay alive in that city. And he was there, supposedly, again, willing to die in Judas's place, in Judas's place. So we'll talk more about Judas here, but um, that happened because Peter, again, was in these Psalms. Let's move toward that idea. First, we have to deal with verse 18 and 19, where Luke jumps in now. And you know, in, in Greek, you don't get the parentheses and the quote marks. You just get a left turn. <laughs> you gotta, what's going on here? Thankfully, the, you know, the editors in English put a little bit here to show that Peter's been preaching, and now Luke's going to explain something to you on the side. But what he explains is kind of, it's intense, right? So verse 18, this man, Judas, bought a field with the reward of his wickedness. That's the 30 pieces of silver. And falling headlong, so he falls on the ground, he burst open in the middle and his bowels gushed out. So you know, if you want to read that like a nincompoop, you can imagine that he just bought the, bought the land, he walked on it, and he fell over and just burst open magically. Right? Um, that's, that's not quite what Luke's trying to say. Remember, this guy's like a doctor in the ancient world. He's using technical language. Um, and if you, if you slow down, he's not an idiot. Uh, most of our modern problems and attacks on the Bible are because we think they were idiots. We don't give them any credit to be smart people. So I'll, I'll come back and explain a little more. There's more of this can of worms that opens, though. So it's known that his, his blood has gushed out on this field, right? And it becomes known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And so they rename the place. Al-Kadama, field of blood. And, okay, so there are a number of other spots in the Bible where the results of Judas' life are detailed. And if I'm going to put them all together for you, I'll just say this is what happens. After Jesus dies, he's feeling incredibly guilty. He hates himself. He does not believe in repentance. He does not believe in God. This is the wrong kind of guilt. It's shame. 
And he he runs back to the temple. He has the silver. He tries to give it back. He said, it's wrong. I was wrong. They say, so what? Uh, and so he throws the silver back at the temple. Now, temple's a big place, so I don't know how far he got up into this, but it, it ends up there and he leaves. We know that from there he goes and he hangs himself. Now, does he hang himself that night? Or does he hang himself on the land that was bought with that money? I don't know. But let me suggest to you that he... Let me suggest to you that he did, in fact, hang himself that night. You could take it a number of ways, but it works if he hung himself that night. He's hanging there dead. They find the blood money. What shall we do with it? They say this much in the text. We can't use it for the temple. It's blood money. You show you the hypocrisy there, right? They, they, they spent the blood money, but they won't take it back. Uh, in any case, so they go and they buy this field that nobody wanted. It was kind of a, a rundown place with that. And the way the ancient world would have seen that is that he bought the field. Yes, he's dead. But it's his money, it's his name, it's his contract. Uh, it's his field. And then someone goes and they take his body, it's already dead. I don't know, maybe they didn't do that. Jews don't touch bodies either. So maybe he did it himself. After they bought the field, he goes there and hangs himself there. Somehow, his dead body gets to that field. And it's hanging there some way. And then, over time, what happens to a body that's hanging there? It starts to rot. Uh, somehow, the wire snaps, he falls, and someone sees it. He's got maggots all inside of him, and Luke tells you, yep, yep, that, that's Judas. That's how it ended. So a bit of a distraction from St. Peter's idea, and yet also introducing the terror that is falling away, the absolute evil and destruction that is to not be in Christ, and all the more reason to pay careful attention to what Peter says next. Verse 20, after saying that we must have someone replace Judas, he quotes two psalms. He says, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So I mentioned before, we don't give Peter enough credit for what he's been doing this whole time. And here I think he tells us he's been reading the Psalms very, very carefully. And he found two of them, Psalm 69 and Psalm 109 both of which detail, it seems like, Jesus' own prayers against Judas. Hmm? Jesus' own prayers against Judas. Now, these two psalms, Psalm 69 and Psalm 109, um, fit into a category that I want to make sure you, you understand. Um, it's not a good transition here, but it's, it's a frustration to me. Uh, in our hymnal, we do not have, and I don't know the number, if it's 20, if it's 25, if it's 15, we do not have a certain number of psalms in the front. You have, you have a lot of them, but you don't have all of them. Now, we're not exactly new in this. If you look at many hymnals, they don't have psalms at all. Uh, if you go back to TLH, TLH does not have all of them. That's the old Lutheran hymnal that people really remember loving a lot. Well, I mean, the argument goes something like this. You know, you have a Bible, the psalms are in the Bible. Uh, you have a hymnal, it's for the hymns, so we'll do as much as we can. The other argument goes, but we want you to use the hymnal at home, as if it's a tool for your resource and devotion. And now you got to go read Psalm 12, and well, it's not there. What do you do? Now, where this becomes an aggravation to me is when you start to realize that all the psalms that are missing are missing for the same reason. That's when it starts to really irk me. And what's the reason? Is they're all part of a category of psalm called imprecatory imprecatory. What it means is against your enemies. So we took all of the songs and prayers against our enemies in God's name, and we decided, well, we won't use those in worship. 
And let me submit to you, that's an interesting strategy. It's an interesting strategy to say, I believe the Bible is inspired and without error, given for my exhortation, rebuke, learning and faith, but not these Psalms, not in public worship. And I would also submit to you, it's because ah, the feminizing wind of America prefers an effete and weak Jesus, straight up. And over 200 years, they've neutered him. Now, to try to show you what I mean, I'm going to read to you Psalm 109. If you got it, I, I encourage you to open it. I will stop to try to help us get through it. It's a little lengthy. There's like five sections, but each of these sections hangs together. And initially, you're not going to be bothered by it at all. But by the time I'm into uh, verses 6 through 13, it's going to start to feel awkward, actually. It just, it's like, can I pray this? And I'm like, what do I do with this? After that, there's going to be a section that gets into, well, the guy we're praying against, he's, he's no real glorious person. This is a very wicked person that we're talking about. And then we get into the prayer for ourselves and for our own salvation in the situation. So before we dig any further than that, let me also suggest to you that one of the easiest ways to, to learn how the Psalms are working is to try to put them in Jesus' mouth first and always have whatever he's speaking against be sin, death, and the power of the devil. And if you do that, it all makes sense immediately. But then you have to remember that it's not just those things. Sin, death, the power of the devil isn't way over there. It's in fact in you. So that the power of your flesh has to be prayed against as well. You're in fact calling yourself the one who must be destroyed. And that is what baptism is the promise that has already happened in Christ on the cross. You were destroyed there, truly and fully. Huh? Uh, so, excuse me, um, the, the prayer then is for my salvation from myself, my salvation from the devil, but it doesn't stop there either because there are also people in this world who simply will never believe in Christ and don't want to. And if you ask them, will say, I'd rather be evil. Now, if you don't believe me, you should go talk to more people you don't know. There are people who would like to do things the Bible calls evil. They don't say evil. They think those things are good. They call evil good. They call good evil. But they're out there. And the Christian's supposed to pray against their triumphing. We're supposed to pray against their being over us or over others. And again, Psalm 109 would be just a good introduction to uh, well, there's a lot of these psalms, really. 109 says this. Do not keep silent, O God of my praise. For the mouth of the wicked and the mouth of the deceitful have opened against me. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue. They have surrounded me with words of hatred and fought against me without cause. In return for my love, they are my accusers. And I give myself to prayer. Thus they have rewarded me evil for good and hatred for my love. I mentioned a moment ago, you could think of Jesus in that and how he's looking down from the cross at all the people who are spitting at him and yelling at him. Yeah, man, that's right there, right? Well, it's written probably by David. And it's either going to be dealing with in his life, King Saul, who was trying to kill him, so he's sleeping in caves with just a couple of guys, starving, basically. Or he's off with the Philistines, living and fighting for them, and acting mad so they don't kill him, and basically ostracized, exiled from his entire life. And so he said, look, they're, they're lying to me, they're attacking me, I can't trust anyone, I can't go home, what am I supposed to do? I give myself to prayer. I mean, the opening is not so bad, right? It's, it's what happens next. 
against his enemy. Verse 6. Set a wicked man over him, and let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is judged, let him be found guilty, and let his prayer become sin. And let his days be few, and let another take his office. Notice that's the quote Peter pulls right there. Let his children be fatherless, and his wife a widow. Let his children continually be vagabonds and beg. Let them seek their bread also from their desolate places. Let the creditor seize all that he has, and let strangers plunder his labor. Let there be none to extend mercy to him, nor let there be any favor to his fatherless children. Let his posterity be cut off, and in the generation following, let their name be blotted out. I think you're with me, right? It's a tough one to just pray. <laughs> who are you who are you praying at? The devil, that helps, right? The flesh, that helps. But what I want to encourage you to believe is that when as a Christian in your life, you have an enemy, you realize this person hates you. All these imprecatory psalms are there for you to pray against them in good faith, knowing that. They all end up with the devil and sin in hell and salvation and faith and grace, a gift given to the believer. So if by some accidental circumstance you were to pray this psalm against a Christian, you know what Jesus is going to do? He's going to fix your brain eventually is what he's going to do. He'll stop you from doing it. He's not going to go after that Christian. Again, King Saul, this is his problem, right? He wasn't a Christian. He was even told... Saul, you've stopped being a Christian, and unfortunately, you're not going to try again, and so you're going to be thrown down eventually. And he spends the rest of his life trying to have that not happen, rather than saying, I'm sorry, forgive me. (laughs) He just lives it out, right? He has to do it. And so these words, in some ways, are Jesus and us praying not about how, Lord, would you please cast my particular enemy down? It's more, Lord, can I come to terms with the fact that I have enemies? Can I come to terms with the fact that you are going to cast down the enemies of your church? And if they are my enemy because they are your enemy, then they're not my enemy, they're your enemy. And I should pray this. I should pray this. Now, again, we live pretty sheltered lives here, I think, in America. You don't yet have on your national media the preaching of the imams of more radical Islam. You can't find where they say things like how Christians should all just be killed. But So you can pray against that. And you can pray that that man would be cast down for his sin. You can do that. And I want to encourage you to believe that. Not so that you would hate. And this is where the fear, I think, is. Obviously, Jesus wants us to love our enemies, right? He says that. Love your enemies. But he doesn't mean by that, love the devil. He doesn't mean love a false teacher when he comes and keeps being a false teacher. What he means is do not take into yourself the authority to fix the world by violence is what he means. And then if you're going to do something about your enemy, pray against your enemy. I pray. Now, verses 14 through 20 talk more about this person and what this person is doing. And what you'll see is that all the prayer is for is for this person to just get what they are, to finally have that be all that they are. Verse 14, let the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord And let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be continually before the Lord that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth. Why? Verse 16. Because he did not remember to show mercy 
but persecuted the poor and the needy man, that he might even slay the broken in heart. Now, Ebenezer Scrooge is a bit of a caricature. You know, the old penny-pinching guy from A Christmas Carol is kind of a joke, right? But the fact is there are people out there who just don't care about anybody else. They want to make money. They want to be wealthy. They want to be strong. It doesn't matter. They're going to push for what they can have. That's what it's calling out and saying this is wicked and it deserves to be cast down. That as he loved cursing, verse 17, so let it come to him. As he did not delight in blessing, so let it be far from him. As he clothed himself with cursing as with his garment, so let it enter his body like water and like oil into his bones. Let it be to him like a garment which covers him and for a belt with which he girds himself continually. Let this be the Lord's reward to my accusers. By the way, the word accuser, Satan, Satan, we get the name from that. And those who speak evil against my person. Uh, I told this story before, so I'll try to be brief. We bought a new home this year. We lived in Rockford for two years. Renters really uh, enjoyed the neighborhood, but wanted to set down some roots. We were so excited that we bought this home close to the church. There's a lake over here. I get a look at it out my window. It's amazing. So I was sitting there this summer, and I can't, I, I think it was water. I think there had been rain the day before or something, and I was sitting outside, and I had a book open to read, and then a cup of coffee or whatever, and something happens, and water falls from the roof. I think maybe the dew had condensed overnight. Maybe that's what it was. Water falls from the roof, and it hits my book, and my, my mouth goes like this. It goes, a pox on you. And I like stopped. I was, I just cursed my house. Jesus, please do not listen to that prayer. I mean, it came out and I meant it. Because I realized, and kind of the point here, if you love cursing, just think about what you're doing then. You're asking for a worse life every time. Sort of a strange way to approach things, right? Now, I caught myself saying a pox on something just two days ago and it was in my house again. So don't let yourself think that I'm actually good at this yet. I just know, I just know I would rather have blessing come out of my mouth. I know that, yeah? Which is why then verse 21 is a real important shift here. Notice how he says to the evil man, let justice come to him. But as for me, deal with me. He doesn't say according to justice. According to your name. Your name, Jesus. You deal with me according to your name because your name is merciful and good and forgiving because you're the God who wants to save, not condemn, right? Deal with me for your name's sake because your mercy is good. Deliver me. Verse 22, for I am poor and needy and my heart is wounded within me. I am gone like a shadow when it lengthens. I am shaken off like a locust. My knees are weak through fasting and my flesh is feeble from lack of fatness. I have also become a reproach to them. When they look at me, they shake their heads. Now again, you can think of Christ on the cross and we are told very clearly that those who walked by shook their heads and beat their breasts as they saw him. But I also think it would be it's, it's too lofty to take this away from you and to try to have you imagine that you can live a life where you never feel this way. Now, maybe you have. Maybe you're one of those very blessed people that has never had your heart wounded within you, that does not often feel like a shadow drawn too long or a locust shaken off with weak knees. But I know that's my life. It really is. There's not a day goes by I don't feel that way. 
And so be able to pray to God, my enemies, I don't understand it. Lord, save me from them. But as for me, be my God to me. Verse 26 goes on, help me. Oh Lord, my God, save me according to your mercy that you may, excuse me, that they may know, notice the shift to those outside, even the enemies themselves, that they may know that this is your hand, that you, Lord, that's Jesus, right? That you have done it. Let them curse, but you bless. Notice the turn. It's all become a chance for everyone, even the enemy to believe, honestly. When they arise though, according to themselves, let them be ashamed but let your servant rejoice. Let my accusers be clothed with shame and let them cover themselves with their own disgrace as with a mantle. I will greatly praise the Lord with my mouth. Yes, I will praise him among the multitude for he shall stand at the right hand of the poor to save him from those who condemn him. And so as one who prays that, you are again attributing to yourself the mantle of the poor or the infant, the one who doesn't have anything to bring. And that's good. That's what a Christian is. Yeah. So now we have a little bit of time left here. We're going to shift back into the book of Acts. The goal of that was to expose you to one of the harshest things in the whole Bible, because you should know that it's there and you shouldn't be ashamed of it. We should not be afraid of what our God has said. To be sure, the imprecatory Psalms need to be carefully handled. You could be a real jerk with those and it won't go good for you. I'm not sure God will really answer the psalm if you're going to try to just call fire down on people around you. But the idea is that when you find despair, frustration, and attack, the Bible has words for you, both to fight against yourself and to fight against the world. And they're there in your Psalter. All right, so Peter, mining all of this, finds this psalm and Psalm 69 and pulls these two lines out of it saying, well, look, these are about the enemies of God. Judas is the enemy of God and he had an office. So let another take an office. May his camp become desolate. Let no one dwell in it. Well, that's the land that was bought, right? So the field of blood is the land. It's come to pass. I see that. But what hasn't come to pass? We haven't filled the office. Let's do it. So he suggests this to the brotherhood. Let one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. End of his kind of preaching there. So when he says from the time of the baptism of John, this is probably meaning when Jesus was baptized by John rather than before that, just when John started baptizing. So that from the moment that Jesus is there teaching, talking, being present, they wanted somebody else who had seen everything. Huh? And after they talked to all of these 122 people, excuse me, 120 people, they figure out that there's two guys that they can put forward that, that fit this bill. One is named Joseph, or they call him Barsabbas, or they also call him Justice. He's got, got a couple nicknames, and I don't know that you can make much of this, but I think there's a little irony that the guy who doesn't get picked, who we know even less about, still gets more names remembered than Matthias does. Matthias doesn't get anything out of this, right? He gets nothing except the office, just the office. So Joseph called Barsabbas, who was called Justice, a guy, a great guy. Also think on him. I've thought about it this way too. Like he's sitting there, 
They're going to do the umen and the thurn or whatever they're going to do for their lots and they're both standing before the crowd. Everyone's praying to them and, and God doesn't want me. Hmm. Hallelujah. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I would personally have been a little sad, I think, to not be the one who was picked. And yet that's, again, the lesson to learn here is that all of this, your salvation, is out of your hands. All of it is in Jesus' hands. And Jesus has you here. Jesus has you here. So they take Matthias, they pray, and they say, you know, we don't even know a little bit. Lord, you know the hearts of all who show, excuse me, this is before they cast the lot. Uh, they say, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which of these two you have chosen, notice the election language there again, to take the place in this ministry. That's another word that has some trouble. And apostleship. Those two words should be really tightly connected to each other. The word ministry should not be used for things that do not regard the word of the Bible and the sacraments of Jesus. So like, say, the ministry of defense, as they would call it in, in old England. That's a, that's a distracting idea. What they mean by it is a service. So the word way back before it gets into the Bible just sort of means to serve or to help. Huh? But then in the New Testament, it becomes this heightened language for the pastoral office, for the work of preaching the gospel. And so... Again, see that as a very specific word here. It's not fluid. It's not vacuous. They want someone to replace one spot. They're praying that, and they acknowledge in the prayer that Judas turned aside on his own to go to his own place. They cast lots. It falls to, to Matthias. To try to kind of put a, a ribbon on it, um, Matthias is unnamed unheralded, unsung, by and large, like the vast majority of Christians in history. Christianity is not about becoming the greatest thing in the world we can be. It's not. It's about knowing that what we are today is enough, and that there's a world coming that's so unimaginably better than what is here, that to try to build it here is to hate that world, is to not want it. And you're not those people. You want that other world. You've heard. You know you are weary and heavy laden. You hear him saying, come, learn that I'm the God who does not judge you guilty, but judges you innocent because I took your place. So don't let anyone make you doubt that. Don't let anyone make you question that. Don't let this world take that away from you. Huh? And uh, even hear it one more time. As we go to this feast, where the promises of being one with the body are made physically yours, come, you who are weary and heavy laden, for Jesus Christ will give you rest. In the name of Jesus, amen.